We're going to continue in our, <clears throat> on our long-term series, and um, tonight we're going to be considering, or to, be, to start considering, because I'm not sure we're going to get that far, to start con- considering the Ten Commandments, which we read in Exodus chapter 20. Just to remind us that we have looked at the importance, um, prominence of Moses in the revelation of redemption in the Bible. And we've also looked at the, the form or the method of revelation, the way that God revealed himself during this period of Moses. And last time we began to look at the content of revelation in this Mosaic period. And we looked at the deliverance from Egypt and the Passover and how that was a kind of template or shape for how in the rest of the Bible salvation and redemption is explained. So tonight we're continuing to look at the content of this revelation during the period of Moses. And as I say we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Well... That's probably the first thing to say is that the word commandments are not actually in the text. In verse 20, in verse 1, it says, And God spake all these words. And so, strictly speaking, what we're reading here are the ten words of God, which is why it's called the, often called the Decalogue. Deca being Latin for ten, and logos or log being word, the ten words, the Decalogue. And God spake all these words. We spent a long time talking about the uh, purpose and the function of the law um, before, didn't we, and in previous studies. And I, I can't repeat all of that, otherwise we'll be here a long time. So what I say tonight has to be set in the context of, all, of the, that teaching that I gave about the different purposes of the law in the Bible. But what is, what is new, what is adding, as it were, to this scheme or this revelation of, of redemption here in the Ten Commandments? So this is the first time that the moral law of God has been codified. God codified it verbally to the people, Mount Sinai, and then twice he put the moral law in handwriting. He wrote himself with his own finger on stone tablets. He had to do it twice because the first first lot were smashed. Um, I think it's the only... It's only the second, I think there's only two examples in the Bible of God writing with his own hand, that's in Daniel, the writing on the wall, and here with the Ten Commandments. So this is what is adding to this uh, scheme of revelation, is that for the first time, it's not that the moral law wasn't there before, of course it was, but now it's written down. The people know this is the moral law of God, and it's in one place. And as we come to the Ten Commandments, and I don't want to repeat everything, but I will repeat one or two things. As we come to the Ten Commandments, we need to distinguish in our minds between 
the different purposes the law um, takes on in the whole of the Bible. Um, Distinguish between that and what I want to do tonight, which is to begin to look at what the original pure purpose of the law was at the time it was given to Israel here in Exodus 20. Um, Those other purposes which we have studied, um, they would have been present in the mind of God as he gave the law here on Mount Sinai. But what what did this law mean for Israel at the time? This newly formed nation under God, this theocracy directly ruled by God, not through any other means of government, but directly by God. It's unique. Um, they'd entered into this covenant with Yahweh or the Lord. And what then, how did they perceive the giving of the law to this, at that time? And what did God intend for the people to make of this law? And that's difficult for us as New Testament people, isn't it? Just to, because our minds, or at least my mind, is buzzing with, with all the things that the Apostle Paul said about the law later on in the epistles, how he analysed the law. And, um, and because of the things Paul said about the law very often, many Christians today have misunderstood Paul and think that the law... The Ten Commandments have no ongoing role in the Christian life. But what we need to remember is that when Paul was writing about the law, on the whole, not exclusively, on the whole, he was combating a heresy. He was combating a false understanding of the law a very different philosophy of the law than the one the people of Israel would have had at the time of the giving of the law. So I want to try and get back to, peel away the layers and get back to what was the original purpose of the law. In fact, the Apostle Paul does that, but because he's combating an error about the law, he, much of his language about the law is, is in negative terms. He's not negative about the law, actually. But because it's couched in negative language, many Christians have gone away with the idea that the law is bad and the gospel is good. uh, And that the law is past and the gospel is present. That's a a false understanding. You see, the Judaizers, as they were called, of Paul's day, those people, for example, he was writing to in the epistle uh, to the Galatians, They were often actually not Jewish at all. They were often Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And and they're always the most difficult customers, aren't they? The the converts to something new. Um, They were zealots for the law, but they were often Gentile zealots in actual fact. They took on the Pharisaical spirit that the Lord Jesus encountered with many of the Pharisees in his ministry this was a view of the law that said that through law keeping you could build up sufficient merit with God 
to achieve or earn salvation or uh, often and probably more common that you could through obedience of the law external obedience of the law you could maintain your salvation so that in other words by being obedient to the law you can you can keep up enough credit with God to stay saved until you die well of course that's not an uncommon view even to this day unfortunately it seems to be creeping its way in even into reformed um, some reformed circles anyway some very strange teaching going about about um, works being necessary to maintain your justification with God well that's not what Paul said he made a clear distinction between justification and sanctification if we confuse those two things we're in, in no, we're no different than Roman Catholics that, that's what they do they, they confuse and conflate justification with sanctification anyway Paul was combating this false understanding of the law and that explains why so often when Paul talks about the law he speaks about the law in negative terms um, he taught that this way of understanding the law as a means of salvation and as a means to retain salvation is completely false and that's why he, he highlights other functions of the law which are not necessarily obvious in Exodus 20 um, for example he talks about the law being like a pedagogue to bring us to Christ he talks about the law shutting people up under sin. He says the law was weak through the flesh. He says that the law worked condemnation, that the law brings a curse, that the law was powerless and there was just a, a ministry of the letter and not of the spirit. All these negative terms people have taken to mean that Paul was being negative about the law itself. But all these terms are his negativity about this false understanding of the law. Now, it's important to understand that. And so many haven't, and therefore they think that the law is over. It's nothing to do with us. Um, but that is not what Paul was saying. Paul, in actual fact, understood the original pure function of the law better than all the Judaizers ever did. In Romans 3 verse 31 he says, Do we then make void the law through faith? He says, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. In other words, by combating this false understanding of the law, Paul was, was going back and making visible what the original pure function of the law really was and that's what I want to try and get over to you tonight and probably that's all we'll achieve this evening my, my intention is to go through all these ten commandments I don't want to get do what I did in Genesis and be here for months but having studied the ten commandments I can see so much that I think is of practical value for us So, let's try then now to, tr to understand what these Ten Commandments are doing originally here in Exodus 20. 
the crucial thing to remember when we think about the Ten Commandments is that putting aside all the other purposes and functions of the law which develop later on for the reasons I've given the Ten Commandments were given to Israel after the deliverance from Egypt and not before the deliverance from Egypt if you've understood that you'll understand most of what I need to say tonight that's the key to understanding the law the law was given to Israel after the people had already begun to enjoy the blessings of the covenant God had made with them in other words the law was given to the already saved and delivered people of God they were saved by a mighty miracle and they were preserved by a mighty miracle and it's impossible to argue from the story of Exodus that they were redeemed on the grounds of their meritorious keeping of the law the situation Israel found herself in here in Exodus 20 is equally as a result of grace as the Christian salvation is it's really the what we need to understand is that the law was given to a people after they had been saved not before and as the means of becoming saved now there's complications with that because as we've previously uh, studied there was a connection between Israel being allowed to stay in the land and their obedience if they were disobedient they said that the, the land would literally vomit you out and that's what happened um, there was a connection as I say between Israel's retaining the land and their obedience but that principle was never operated by the Lord on an individual basis that principle of obedience and staying in the land or disobedience and being exiled from the land that was never put into practice by God on an individual basis it was done on a national basis so many individuals would have been disobedient while the nation as a whole was obedient and vice versa but when there was a national apostasy, when things had got so bad that you could say as a nation Israel had apostatized, then Israel goes into captivity. Happened, happened quite a few times. You read Judges, it happened every seemed to happen every five minutes. <clears throat> but even when that happened. The Lord never allowed the covenant to fail. And after some punishment and some chastisement of Israel, what happens? Israel repents, yes. And Israel is restored to favour. Well, how is it restored to favour? Not by law keeping. It's by, is it by merit? No, it's by grace. So even when they fail, even when they get punished and they're thrown out of the land, they're brought back to the land through grace. So, 
This link between obedience and staying in the land was never, as I say, operated on an individual Jewish believer's basis. It was was the generality of the nation's obedience or disobedience. And that's where the Judaizers in Paul's day went wrong. They were conflating promises and warnings to national Israel with an individual's experience of salvation. In other words, they were taking those verses or scriptures which say that if you are obedient, you will get these blessings, or if you're disobedient, you'll get these curses, which were meant to be understood in national terms, and they were taking those verses, and you were saying, well, there... They were saying to Paul, well, there you are. It's saying here that if, as an individual, if I obey, then I will enter into blessedness through the keeping of the law, or vice versa. And it's always been an error to believe that law observance is the meritorious ground of blessedness or favour from God. And it's a tragedy that even to this day, the law has become a burden and a yoke on the backs and, and on the necks of, of the Jews, of the Judaizers. Those who practice Judaism and, and, and also not just Judea, Judaizers, but, but Christians who are legalists, who um, very often from liberal churches, who see Christianity as a code of ethics that they have to keep to. So, what I want to get across is that in the context of the Old Testament, the giving of the law to Israel was one of the greatest, if not the greatest blessing that he conferred upon his people. Um, It was never meant to be a burden and a yoke and a bondage, it was a blessing. The giving of the law. Um, Moses says in Deuteronomy 4 verses 7 and 8. For what nation is there so great. Who hath God so nigh unto them. As the Lord our God is in all things. That we call upon him for. And what nation is there so great. That hath statutes and judgments. So righteous as all this law which I set before you this day. So it's a mistake to identify the Old Testament in a negative way with law and the New Testament in a positive way with the Gospel. But an an immature reading of the epistles can lead you to that. It is not that easy. But because Paul was not combating the law, he was combating a false teaching about the law, it's easy to run away with the idea that the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good. It's led many to think that there was no gospel in the Old Testament. But we've seen in our previous studies that through types 
The Old Testament prefigures and anticipates the New Testament. There was real gospel, a real gospel under the Mosaic Covenant. And the gospel is found in the law itself. Especially, I'd argue, in the ritual law. With its sacrifices and celebrations. All proclaiming the riches of grace in Christ through types. So, there is great um, continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And that's what much of what we've studied in previous studies. I've emphasised the continuity. But we have to also say, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, we have to say that although there's much continuity between the old and the new, there is also a lot of difference as well. Which is another reason why the New Testament contains verses which, if we're not careful, can lead us to think that the law has no continuing role for the Christian. You see, the New Testament emphasises time and time again that the New Covenant is by far a better covenant than the Mosaic Covenant. The Gospel was contained in the Old Covenant. It was a workable religion where you can make real contact with God. It was a workable way of redemption. The Gospel was there. It enabled people to make real contact with their God yet in the light of the New Testament we can now see that the gospel in the in the old covenant institutions bore a very legal character and form which is different in the New Testament it's not that the law is not relevant in the new covenant but the the framing of it in the old was law a very legal heavy um way of administrating the gospel the gospel was presented in a legal environment and it's only in the new testament that the full liberty of the children of god is obtained so what i'm saying very simply if you didn't get what i've just said is that we must never think that the old testament is bad and the new testament is good we should rather say the old testament was good and the New Testament is even better. They're both good. But the New Covenant we're in is even better. And when we say it's better, what we're saying is that this one covenant of grace, which we've studied so much, beginning in Genesis 3.15, this salvation by grace, so there's only one covenant running right through, but it's administered into different covenants, um, broadly speaking, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And what we're saying is that the Gospel is administered, managed in a better way under the New Covenant than in the Old Covenant. But the Gospel was there in both. It's just better now. And the excellency of the New Testament ministration of the Gospel is explained, if you want to study this for yourself, I'm not doing it now, but this, the, the, the way, the superiority of the New Testament is explained by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and in the book of Hebrews in particular. If you study those two things, 
uh, you'll see the specifics of why this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. But we're going to return to now to the specific context of the giving of the Ten Commandments or these of the Decalogue. And we're going to read, and this is probably all we'll get to tonight, we're going to read the, the preamble or the preface, if you like, to the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And it says, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So this is the first word that the Lord gives. And this preamble, if we can call it that, it tells us much about the character of the law. Um, The Judaizers and the Christian legalists of our day treat the law as, as a kind of ethical code. They treat the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. The Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments see as one thing. I mean, the Lord Jesus gives a greater insight into the law, but it's, it's all the one thing. It's the law. Um, just They treat it as just bare commands from God. But right from the start... The law is presented in the context of a grateful response to God for what he has already done for his people in redemption. That's a, that's a positive view of the law, that it's a grateful response to a God who has saved us. And that's how Israel would have originally understood the Ten Commandments. In other words, the impetus or the motivation for obedience to the law is love for God. And this is what Jesus said to the lawyer in Matthew 22, wasn't it? Quoting from Deuteronomy, the lawyer asked him which was the greatest commandment in the law. And our Lord replied, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's a wonderful thing. When we come, because so so many people think of the Ten Commandments as as old hat or as restrictive or as telling you what you're not allowed to do as opposed to what you're allowed to do. Uh, Or or more often they say, well, it's it's got no relevance anyway to the Christian because we're under grace. Um, But this preamble to the law when God addresses the people at Mount Sinai Mount Sinai emphasizes to the people that he is the God of mercy and the God of redemption and that he brought them out from the land of Egypt and he's now speaking to them as the people that he has saved and is saying now you are saved now you are my people this is how I want you to live These are my requirements. The law of the Lord is addressed to those who have been brought out of bondage, literally in the Hebrew, out of the house of slaves. And the purpose of the law was to teach the people how to live as a free man and as a free woman or a free boy boy or a free girl. You see, 
They had been in Egypt as slaves and they had a slave mentality. If you're under bondage for, for, for any length of time, you, you see this people in prison or in a, men, in a mental institution, they become institutionalized uh, and they can't think for themselves. They become compliant and, they, and they, they, there's, they become almost like robots. Well, that's what Israel would have been like. They, they needed to know how to be free again because they had the minds of slaves. And the law, the purpose of the law here is to teach them the fact that now you are free. This is what a free person lives like. This is what freedom looks like. It's the opposite to what people often think of as the law. You see, the Jews later turned the law into another kind of bondage. But that was the very opposite of what the law was meant to be. The law was an instruction to those who were once in bondage but are now free is an instruction in in the behaviour and the lifestyle of a free man or woman under God. And that reminds us again about this relationship between grace and law. Um, This is God, the God of salvation imposing his law on his people so grace precedes grace comes before any demands or any commandments of God grace comes first the commandments come afterwards the law was not given so that they might become the redeemed people of God the law was given because they had already become the redeemed people of God. And that's what we need to understand. Otherwise we, we become legalists ourselves. We misunderstand the law in the same way as the Galatians did. The best way for you and I to think of the law here and in, in, in the much fuller explanation of the law by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is that the law of God is the way of life God sets out for those whom he has saved. And we do it, we obey the law, or God expects us to obey the law, not out of a bare duty, but as a re- out of love for God, our Redeemer. So law, let me put it this way, law does not lead to grace in, in this original sense. But grace always leads to law. Now you have to be careful how you say that and in what context. But in this context, grace leads to law because grace leads to wanting to please God. Grace in your life leads you to want to live in the way that God has stipulated and the way that he expects a Christian to to live and to obey. Grateful love is expressed in obedience. Now that's a very different emphasis than than is taught by evangelicals today. But it's it's the explanation of why in the Old Testament, for example, we get such delight in the law by the Old Testament saints. 
We think of Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And many Christians think of, as I I say, of the law as as a list of uh, prohibitions, restrictions. But it's really the way those of us who were once slaves can now live as free people. Psalm 119 verse 44 and 45 says, So shall I keep thy law continually, forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will walk at liberty. Literally, I will walk around in freedom, for I seek thy precepts. Precepts is the word, one of the words for the law where a precept is sort of a, the law at, the, at, at, at a ground level. It's a, it's a law applied to specific aspects of life. And the psalmist is saying, even at the level of precepts, this enables me to, to, to live in freedom, in liberty. The more I align every aspect of my life to the law, the more I walk in freedom. Um, twice in, in the epistle of James, he refers to the law as the law of liberty. In James 1.25 he says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in the deed. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So I wonder if you've ever thought of the Ten Commandments in that way, as a law of liberty. So often we hear, well I have anyway, people launch into the into the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me but they miss out the first two verses but the first two verses give the whole character of the law its whole meaning and that's so important for us as Christians today you will only love God's law and you will only obey God's law if your obedience flows from a love for God in fact God doesn't want any other kind of obedience from you or me there's there's a kind of um, Cain like worship where you bring your sacrifice but you leave your heart somewhere else and that's not what that's not the kind of obedience that God wants God wants a willing obedience it's something like the difference between the, the teenager who's asked to to do a chore by their mum or dad and they do the chore they wash the car but they huff and they puff and they stamp and they throw the bucket down and they make it obvious through their body language they don't, they, they don't want to do it they're moody and resentful and the difference between that and the teenager when asked to do this or that says yes mum or yes dad they may not say anything else, but they just go off and do it. They say, well, you, in, in their hearts, they say, well, you do so much for me. You sacrifice so much for me. I'm, I'm willing to do this tiny thing 
for you to please you. You see, for the Christian, law has nothing to do with condemnation. It's God looking for obedience in his children and a willing obedience. Not leaving our heart behind, but obeying from the heart. So what it says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. It's not, it's not just being obedient, it's not just doing, it's not just doing what, what God asks or not doing what he prohibits. You can do that and hate God. Most people don't have any problem not committing, you know, actual murder or actual adultery. Most people live respectable lives. But their hearts are it's a very different matter inside, isn't it? That's what the Sermon on the Mount gets to. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. We all remember Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He, he thought that although he had been disobedient, he could still get away with it by continuing to offer sacrifices to God. But the scripture says to obey is better than sacrifice. The people of God in Jeremiah's day had provoked God terribly. Unbelievable when you read Jeremiah. But they carried on with their burnt offerings and sacrifices. They'd done everything, every insult to God you could imagine. And yet they carried on with their church services. Putting it in today's terms. They carried on with their sermons and hymns and all the rest of it. But God said, referring to the Exodus in fact, in Jeremiah 7 verse 22 and 23, he says, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. God never said anything about that. Originally, but this thing commanded I them obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. That's what God's looking for obedience from the heart. So, applying this to ourselves as Christians, are are you? Walking in obedience to God tonight? Are you walking in the liberty of this law? Because the more you obey this law, the freer you will be. That's why participating in the externals of religion without inner obedience is so offensive to God. That's what He hates the most. People, religious people who and we, we've got to be careful of this ourselves, that we, we carry on with the externals, but inside we're full of sin and disobedience. God hates that more than anything. He hates that, he hates that more than, than, than outright sinners who don't even go to church or have any religion of any kind. It's why the disobedient Christian is forbidden by Paul to participate in the Lord's Supper because 
You can't, it's an offence to God to participate externally without the internal love for him and obedience to him. That's why Paul says that there are many sick among you. That's why many have gone to sleep, many have died. God hates it that much, a judgment comes. Judgment came on the people of Israel many times because of this great disparity between the external burnt offerings and the the ritual sacrifices. And in the end it became a stink to God's nostrils because there was inside of the people there was this um, rotten heart. There was this disobedient and yet they carried on with their offerings and sacrifices. Exodus chapter 19 tells of a time of preparation before the people received the law. And these preparations stress the holiness of God. A holy God requires a holy people. Four times in the book of Leviticus, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so... The lesson of the Ten Commandments, or at least these two opening verses, is that the degree to which we obey God's law as Christians is the degree to which we really love God. Love is the fuel for our obedience. Love for God is the petrol or the diesel which fires up our obedience to God and our love for God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. What did Jesus say? He said, he said If ye love me, obey my commandments. So, It's no good us singing hymns about how much we love God and then doing the things that displease him. This isn't a matter of condemnation. It's a matter of of love for God. We can't say we love God if we don't keep his commandments. And I know we, are all, we cannot obey the law fully. We break the law, we fail. But our, the direction of our lives should be that we want to walk in the way that God has described a free Christian should live. And the degree to which we align our lives to the, to the law, here in Exodus 20, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole of the scripture in fact, is the degree to which we prove or disprove our love for God. doesn't matter what we say, doesn't even matter what we do. If in our hearts there's not real love, because you can be very active as a, as a Christian to impress other people. You can, you can make a form of religion to fit in or, or to, to look good, to impress others. Only God knows the heart. And it's an obedience from the heart. And even if you're you're old or sick or, or very young and you can't do very much you can't do as much as others that makes that matters not a, anything to God he looks at your heart 
And we all fall, we all fall short of this. And I, I preach to myself as much as to you. But keeping the law of God, the word of God, it says to God more than anything else how much we love him. That's what he looks for, obedience. It's very simple, isn't it? And perhaps we need to say less and do more. That, that would be probably a, a good thing for all of us. Because it's obedience from the heart that God, not our words, not our, even our understanding, not our knowledge, not our gifts. It's a pure burning love for God, like the seraphim and the cherubim. They burn with holy love for God around the throne. He looks for a grateful response and a redeemed heart. He looks for sincerity in our hearts. He looks for an undivided heart. We are told here to love in the first place the Lord thy God. Do we do that, dear friends? Do we, do we actually love God? Do we have a delight in God for his own sake? Not just for the things God gives us, but a delight in God himself. Just for who he is. Do we delight in God as God? And uh, Deuteronomy says, with all your soul, with all of us, every part of us, and with all thy might, all our energy, all our time, our youth, our strength. He wants all of that to be given to him, to love the Lord thy God. Well, dear friends, that's to me the original and the pure purpose of the Ten Commandments. And we'll continue to, to look at how that works out in the, in the other commandments uh, as we go forward in this study. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.